Hello and welcome everyone. How are we doing? Pretty good. Thanks for your patience. I know uh, a lot of the folks here came in early, um, doing some emails and whatnot. Um, we've got quite a wide room, so I'll try and talk to both, di both directions. So we're here uh, to talk about creating your virtual data center or VPC fundamentals, connectivity options, and partners. I'm Matt Lewis. I'm a principal solution architect here at uh, Amazon Web Services. And uh, I deal with partners a lot. Uh, who's an AWS partner here in the room? This is the Partner Summit. I saw a couple floating around before. OK. Awesome. Cool. And non-partners, obviously. You're, you're welcome as well. Customers. All righty. Let's get in there. So you've got AWS. And you want to use Amazon EC2. And you'd like to use VPC, perhaps. We've got a couple of instances that we're spinning up here. Instance A, B, C, and D. We basically give each instance an IP address. Okay, that's how you connect to instances, pretty straightforward. It's how you've connected to servers in data centers for a long time before AWS was invented. So we give each one of these instances an IP address. Now what we've built here in AWS is our availability zones, which I'm sure most of you are probably familiar with. Some of you might not be. They're fault domains um, where we have data centers that share fault domains, and we group them into availability zones. So here we've spun up some instances in two separate availability zones. Now you want to connect to the internet. What do you need? You'll notice here we've had private IPs on these instances so far. You probably want to have some public IPs there. So we're using a, a 54 range, which you probably see as familiar as, as Amazon's. And then we have Amazon VPC, which is your virtual private data center, which is going to sit around these instances. Okay, so it's giving you the ability to configure attributes for your instances within your own virtual data center, like your private IP address, like associating public IP addresses, etc. So then within the VPC, what do we need? Well, we need subnets. So we've got public subnets, which we want to be accessible to, to the public internet. And we've got private subnets. And we probably don't want IPs or public IPs on the private subnets, so we get rid of those. Now we have what's called an IGW, or an Internet Gateway. And we attach that to the VPC. And we can now talk from or communicate from the public subnet out over the IGW to the public internet. OK, pretty straightforward. This is, this is what a foundational AWS application would look like. Um, outside of, say, serverless and Lambda and, and other services, when you're building things with Amazon EC2, today you'll use VPC. And, um, who spins up EC2 uh, inside their account today uses VPC, whether they know it or not. We actually have this thing called VPC by default, which I'll talk to a little bit as well. What do we do if we want a, a VPC that's connected to the internet? So we've stepped through some of the steps, but there's some things that we need to do to, to get that working. So there's four things. We want to choose an address range for our virtual private data center or our, our VPC. Then we're going to create some subnets within that VPC. Then we'll create a route for the, um, for the subnets, so a route to the internet in this case. And we'll talk about route tables and what they look like. And this is how you can control where your traffic is going to go inside your virtual private data center. In the on-premise world, you configure a router and say, OK, I'm going to have an internet connection. I'm going to have a default route that sends everything to the internet. I'm going to have a local LAN route to my local in, uh, virtual machines, perhaps, or physical machines. In Amazon VPC, it's the same deal. And I'll talk about route tables and how they work. Security is very important here at uh, AWS. So you want to authorize traffic to and from your instances in this case. And we have security groups and NACLs, and we'll talk to those a little bit as well. 
So this is foundations, so building an Amazon VPC. So what do we want to do when we create a VPC? A VPC is a logical construct. What does it really mean? What, is it, what does it constitute or made up of? It's made up of a Cedar address range, a classless interdomain routing address range. So in this case, we choose a 172.31.0.0/16. What does that even mean? Well, if we convert it to binary, and I'm sure some of you are familiar with the binary notation of, a, um, of an IP address, but basically what it means is we've got this slash 16, or the first 16 bits of a CEDA address range, or the address range we chose for our VPC, that's going to be the, the network range for that VPC. Now what that leaves us is everything that you see on the right-hand side of the, uh, the uh, blue portion here, the other 16 bits, we can configure subnets and instances inside those ranges inside that CEDA address range. So why was this important when we were spinning up uh, VPCs or when we created VPC, why was it important that you could choose your own CEDA address range? Well, our customers have on-premise deployments, they have IP addressing schemas, they have a 10.1, a 10.2, a 10.3 in their on-premise. They want to connect their on-premise to AWS. If we said everyone must use a 10.1, then there's going to be a lot of address clashing. You need natting. And I mean, I know as a former network engineer, I worked as a network engineer for about 10 years building large-scale networks. Whenever I heard nat, I ran in the opposite direction. Um, double nat, even worse. Uh, so we want to try and avoid those things. So you can choose your address range when you're spinning up a VPC. So in this case, we've got a 172.31.16. What are some recommendations? Well, we do recommend that you use RFC 1918. What does that mean? Well, RFC 1918 is basically a set of special addresses that have been set aside for private addressing. So 17231, as you can see here, or it's actually, I think, 17212, um, but uh, a 192.168, a 10, slash 8, actually. So these are private addresses that aren't routed out onto the public internet. So you can choose them and use them within your VPC without um, worrying about conflicting addresses in the public realm because they're, they're completely separate from that. Also, we've got a slash 16. When you create a VPC, the largest address range today you can choose is a slash 16. So that's going to give you about 65,000 addresses to use from uh, or to use. And you're going to create subnets from those, obviously. We also have VPC resize now, which is pretty awesome. So you can add VPC seeders to your uh, VPC as well. And I actually talk about that in a session on Thursday, net 305. OK, so we want to avoid ranges that overlap with what you want to connect to. So in this case, we've chosen a 172.31. Out of our IP addressing schema, we're going to use that address range. So what about subnets? Well, within the subnet, we're deploying in EU West 1, for example, and we've got three availability zones, there are um, specific constructs to think about when you're deploying subnets. And a VPC is a region-level construct, so it's tied to the region. You can't have a VPC that spans multiple regions. It's a region-level um, domain. Subnets are an availability zone domain. So when you create a subnet, it exists within an availability zone. So here we've got a 172.31.00/24. We've got a 1/24 and a 2/24. Each of these subnets are tied to an availability zone, and when you spin up EC2 instances, they're going to exist inside that availability zone. So that's how you select. I'd like to have an instance in one availability zone and an instance in another availability zone. You're going to choose two separate subnets there that are um, in separate availability zones. So now you've got this redundancy, and you can control that within your VPC. So some subnetting tips. So what do we want to do when we're creating subnets? Well, a VPC is about 65,000 addresses. It's quite a lot. Um, generally choose at least slash 24 subnets. Now, the reason why I say that is you get about 251 usable addresses in a subnet. 
we take a couple of addresses. The dot one, for example, is a default router or a logical router within that subnet create. And there's a few other things. So when you do spin up, say, uh, a Lambda inside a VPC or RDS, for example, a relational database service, they will take addresses from your subnet. So if you say, I've got 251 hosts, I'm going to create a slash 24, you're probably going to run out of addresses when you start doing other things. Not to mention auto-scaling, when you have multiple instances that are scaling horizontally, you want to have a lot of addresses available there. So generally start with at least a slash 24, sometimes bigger. So using multiple availability zones through multiple subnets is again very important and and just one point here on the uh, EC2 SLA uh, we do say that you must have multiple instances in multiple availability zones so that's how we control the fault domains again within the VPC so we want to route to the internet what does that look like okay so the route table is going to define where packets go you've got a VPC where do you want to send packets Do you want to send packets to the internet do you want to send packets over a peering connection to another VPC? Do you want to send uh, packets over a, a VGW to an on-premise via a direct connector or a VPN? The routing table is really where that happens. Your VPC has a default route table to start with. Now, um, who's heard of a default route? Yeah, a lot of people. Okay, so a default route is a 000 slash zero, and it's basically a catch-all for where you want to route traffic if you don't have a more specific route. Now. A default route table within a VPC is something different. Uh, don't get confused with the word default. It is a bit confusing. But uh, the default in this case is you've got a route table that will be used by default. Okay, so when you spin up a VPC, we will give you a route table that that VPC is going to use. When you spin up a subnet, that subnet's going to inherit that route table by default. Now, that can be... Um, something to consider because what you want to do is have your subnets as separate fault domains. Again, they're in separate availability zones if, you, you know, if you've configured them that way. And then you want to have a separate route table per subnet to separate the fault domain even further. So you've got a default route table, you create a subnet, create another route table for that subnet as well. So you can assign different route tables to your subnets. Very important and something that you should always consider. Alrighty, so we've got a, a route table here, and I generally refer to three digits here, so E61 is this, this route table, just makes it easy, and you'll notice that we've got a uh, route there, that if this is a brand new route table, we didn't actually configure that route, so this is a 172.31.00 slash 16, it's what we call the local route. So the local route says anything inside this VPC, and you'll notice a correlation between 172.31.16 and the VPC seeder range we chose before. This is how your instances are going to talk to each other. So when you spin up an instance in one availability zone in one subnet with one route table, and again in another availability zone with another route table, um, you will have this default or local route there to allow these instances to communicate to each other. You can't configure a more specific route than the local route. Um, this is really a, a catch-all inside the VPC so that VPC to VPC, a VPC instance to instance communication can happen. Okay, so what if we want to send traffic to an we, we want to send uh, internet traffic via an internet gateway. What do we do here? Well, we want to add a route, a default route again, so uh, 000 slash 0 via an IGW. What that's going to do inside this route table is say, anything local, I'll send it to the local router, so the 172.31 slash 16. Anything that isn't a part of that, I'm going to send to the IGW or the internet gateway, which is, think of it like a logical router that's attached to the VPC, giving you internet access. So anything that isn't defined for the VPC, let's send it to the internet. All right, so network security inside your VPC. 
So we do have a shared security responsibility model. AWS takes care of the physical security of your um, hosts that the instances are sitting on. Um, by shared, it means that you can configure security as well. So security groups and NACLs are one way of doing that. And, and a network ACL or a NACL is like a stateless firewall. So we can basically configure a rule here that we can apply on a subnet basis to say, what traffic do I want to allow in, inside and outside of this subnet? So that's an error of security that we can configure there. So in this case, we're allowing all traffic. And by default, NACLs or network access control lists will allow all traffic. And we've got an explicit deny there. So you can change that. And um, you could have someone come in uh, from your IT operations um, uh, folks who could configure a block on a particular port that they don't want these instances to access, et cetera, at a subnet level. OK. So security groups. A little bit different. Uh, security groups actually follow the application level construct. So they're based at, at an instance basis. So when we configure a security group, we spin up an instance, we assign a security group to that instance. So in this case, we've got a certain type of application in yellow. It could be a web application. And we're assigning a security group to that, um, to those instances. Blue here could be our database or application tier. So in this case, we've got two separate security groups. Now, what's the purpose of having two different layers here? Well, security is always a layered approach. So we want to have um, basically an open layer or, or a web. In this case, this is a two-tiered web architecture. We have our web instances, which are open to the, the outside world. So anyone can come in. And you've got a default route there. You've got an IGW. And you, you've opened up your security group. So anyone can come in and access your website or, or your application or whatever you may be running there. Then we've got a more constricted security group for our application or database tier. So we're only allowing web servers to talk to the application or database tier. So the outside world can't come in and do a remote, um, um, let's say, database call to your database or anything like that. Only the web servers can talk to the application and database tier. So in this case, we've got, a, we've got our two tiers. So hosts in this tier, so we can see here, and I think I can Oh, yeah, that works pretty well. We've got our, our web security group here on, on top. And we're allowing anything. So that's what it looks like. We've basically got a port 80. Let's allow anything from source 000. Great. Then if we have a look at the back end, so we're, we've got, whoops, we've got our back end security group here. This security group is allowing port 2345 and referencing the web security group. So saying anything in that web security group, we're going to allow to access our database and application tier. OK, so now we've got this, these tiered out security groups. So only instances in your My Web Servers security group can access the instances that have this security group as associated. All righty, some additional uh, notes here on security groups. So you always want to the principle of uh, least privilege. So security groups, you don't want to open them up to the world and block specific things. You probably want to block everything and open up specific things. So for example, uh, HTTP port 80, you, it's a web server. Outside world should probably be able to access that web server on port 80. If you're not using, um, let's say it's not a mail server or something else, you probably don't want to have that port open to those web servers. So always follow a principle of least privilege, privilege with security groups. You can also create egress and ingress security group rules. So if you've got an instance that you don't think should be accessing the outside world or initiating traffic, you can block that as well. And you'll always see a one-to-one -one relationship generally 
between security groups and uh, applications. So web instances, web security groups, application or database, application or database security groups, etc. So there's a, a correlation there between applications, security groups, and generally IAM roles, so our um, rules that say what these instances can do within your AWS account. Alrighty, so let's, let's tie it all back together and see what this looks like, the VPC that we've created. We've got a VPC CEDA range. Where I've chosen a 10.1.0.0/16 just because I can. You can choose any range you want, actually. Um, even public ranges, but we do recommend private. We've got our multiple availability zones with multiple subnets. So we've got two public subnets here. We've got two private subnets. We've got a couple of instances inside those subnets. We attach an IGW to the VPC. And when you create a VPC, it doesn't come with an IGW. You actually create an IGW and then attach it to the uh, VPC. And then as you can see here, we can create a VGW and attach that to the VPC as well if we wanted to have something like on-premise or VPN uh, through Direct Connect or VPN. And we'll talk about that as well. Now, the route table, again, is going to dictate if, where you would like to send traffic to. So you're basically going to define, I'd like to send traffic for a certain destination to either an IGW, a VGW, or a peering connection, or a virtual private endpoint, et cetera. So how do partners fit into this? We have some partners in the room, and uh, I want to talk about partners. So we've got this architecture where we've got a couple of instances, and we want to deploy some firewalls. What does that look like? In this case, we've got a set of marketplace AMIs in our public subnet. They could be a set of firewalls or something similar. And now we've got a route here, and I think I zoom in on this guy. We've got a default route via an ENI. Okay, so we're basically sending all internet traffic for, uh, this is safe for the route tables for these instances. We're sending that to this ENI, which could be this instance here. So then we're basically determining, okay, we'd like to send traffic from these instances. We'll send that up to the marketplace AMIs. So the AWS Marketplace has a bunch of different firewalls, um, things like the Cisco CSI, if you want uh, routers, so Sophos, Palo Alto, Barracuda, um, and a bunch of others like Fortinet, Checkpoint, et cetera. So um, partners and uh, firewalls that you use on-premise, you can actually deploy these inside your VPC as well uh, using route tables, et cetera. Now, one thing about route tables is think about route tables as a, as a static routing mechanism. So you can configure a static route to a specific destination. What about if we want to have a little bit more of a dynamic uh, architecture? So what we've got here is an auto-scaling tier of firewalls. So we're actually using, this is for outbound to inbound. So in this case, we've probably got something out here talking to maybe some web servers, and we'd like some sort of firewalls or something that's doing some kind of app visibility, or uh, it could be doing some form of firewall ruling, um, etc. And we'd like to auto-scale these. So in that case, we can basically have a set of firewalls in an auto-scaling group, and we've got what we call an ELB sandwich configuration, where we've got multiple ELBs. We've got a front-facing load balancer up here, which is going to load balance across the multiple firewalls, and then the firewalls are then sending to a um, lower tier ELB, which is then load balancing across the multiple web servers. So what's going to happen is if your web instances get overrun by um, requests you've been tech crunched, uh, which is, you know, could be a good thing, your web layer is going to scale. The firewall layer then should scale as well with this too, because you're going to be looking at, okay, how many sessions are the firewall sending? What kind of metrics do I need to send to CloudWatch? CloudWatch is going to trigger an alert, trigger an auto-scaling event, and scale out by order of magnitude or an order of number of firewalls that you want to deploy. So now we're moving away from the tightly coupled scenario we had earlier. Now we've got a little bit more of a horizontally scaling architecture.
with marketplace AMIs uh, in this instance. Alrighty, we've talked about the VPC itself, what it looks like foundationally. Uh, think of it like the foundation to your skyscraper. You're building a huge building. It starts with the VPC if you're using EC2 and that sort of thing. There's a lot of constructs that you can build around that. But what about connecting to the VPC? Uh, we originally talked about choosing your CEDA address range, being able to select that, um, being able to use your IP addressing schema that you use on-premise. So we can do things like connecting to a VPC. So what we need when we're connecting to a VPC? Well, we need, we need to restrict uh, internet access. So we can talk about that. Uh, we want to connect to other VPCs using things like VPC peering, and then connecting to your on-premise corporate network. So restricting internet access, um, well, we can basically route by subnet here. So we, we have discussed this. We've got a, a public uh, instance here. We've got an IGW. We've got a route here, a 000 via the IGW. Um, the lower inside tier, the private subnet, now has a route via an instance. For example, it could be a NAT instance, it could be a firewall, et cetera. So now it's going to be used as a, a proxy to talk through to the public internet. We do also have NAT gateway. So we do listen to our customers quite a lot, actually. And a lot of the services you'll see out there uh, come from customer requirements. So we saw a lot of customers deploying NAT instances. And uh, it's something that's manual. You need to do, uh, do a lot of configuration on the NAT instance. And if you want to do uh, things like uh, auto-scaling NAT instances or high availability NAT instances, it can get um, a little unwieldy. So we uh, released NAT gateway. So you can basically deploy a NAT gateway in your public subnet and use that as an endpoint to talk out to the public internet or communicate out to the public internet. Alrighty, into VPC connectivity. So we have VPC peering, and in this case, we've got a shared services VPC in the middle here. So what might uh, be in the shared services VPC? Well, maybe Active Directory or some kind of log server or a visualization server or, or something that multiple applications in multiple VPCs might want to talk back to a common service. So in this case, we've got um, a 172.16, which is our central services VPC. We're peering, using VPC peering, out to these other VPCs that can now talk to this central services VPC. So you're going to deploy common core services inside this VPC. And we've started calling these types of architectures VANs, or VPC area networks, if you will. So we might deploy some authentication, some monitoring, some logging, uh, and some other services inside that shared services VPC, as opposed to deploying in every VPC, let's say you have VPCs or 10 VPCs or even 100 VPCs. Um, you don't want to have to deploy an Active Directory in each one of these VPCs. So that's when a, something like a services VPC really comes into play. So how do we uh, configure between VPCs? Well, we can do security groups for security across VPCs, so that's great. So if we've got an orange security group and a, a green security group that works across peering. But how do we configure the actual peering connection? Well. You initiate a peering uh, connection request. So you've got a VPC. It's in an account. You'll create a peering connection request and send it to another account, or it could be the same account, and connect. say, I want to connect to this VPC. If you send it to another account, that person then goes into that account and says, I would like to connect to this VPC, and accepts the peering connection. So we initiate a peering uh, connection request. We'll then accept the peering connection request. And then you'll create the routes for the peering connection. So creating the routes in this case, we basically go into the route table of the VPC that we want to connect to. And you'll notice here we've got an additional route here, the PCX, um, I guess I'll use the last three digits here, is 70A. We've got a 1055 slash 16 via this PCX. So that's the peering connection itself. 
Alrighty, so that's going to give you the connectivity that you've just configured from the 1055 to the, to the 172.31. So this is actually in the 172.31, we're saying, I'd like to connect to 1055 via this peering connection that has been accepted and created. You'll notice there as well, we've got something via VGW. I'll talk about that one in just a second. Okay. So connecting back to your premise, how do we do that? Well, we've got two options, VPN and, and Direct Connect. How does, what does that look like? So you've basically got, whoops, sorry about that. Um, you've got your on-premise, and you'd like to connect your VPC. So services within your VPC, remember they're address out of an address range you chose. So a 10, 1, 0, 0, slash 16, for instance. You need to connect that back to your on-premise. So that might be a 172 or something similar. A VPN via VGW is one option, or direct connect is what we basically have as the ability to have a physical fiber that comes into what we call a direct connect pop or a point of presence. And then you can connect to what we call a private virtual interface from there into a VPC. And we'll talk about that. Some considerations between the two. Well, both allow secure connections, but in a different way. So Direct Connect is not encrypted, but it's a secure connection in uh, the terms that it's a private connection. So you're not going over the public internet. It's a connection between your 172 and your 10, your VPC and your on-premise, and you're communicating privately over that um, physical file. It's not encrypted. You can have application encryption, obviously. A VPN however, goes over the public internet. So we've got a VGW which does VPN termination, and that's going to go over the public internet via an IPsec tunnel. That is encrypted, but it is over the public internet. So two different methods of connecting to a VPC. So think of Direct Connect as your dedicated line and VPN as your encrypted tunnel to a VPC. Um, Direct Connect, one of the benefits as well, it gives you lower gigabyte or per gigabyte data transfer. So whereas if you look at, say, US East 1, it's a 9 or 8 cents per gig a tiered. So as you s send more data per month, the price goes down. With Direct Connect, it's a flat 2 cents per gig, uh, give or take, depending upon the region. For highest availability, you can use both. You can use a VPN and a Direct Connect, or multiple Direct Connects and a VPN. So what does it look like when we want to provision Direct Connect to our on-premise? Well, the first thing we want to do is build our AWS infrastructure. We've got our on-premise. So we've got an AWS VPC. We might have some services that sit outside VPC, like S3, DynamoDB, et cetera. Then we create a virtual gateway. So we create a, a VGW or a virtual private gateway and then attach it to the VPC we want to connect to via a private virtual interface. We then go and order the direct connect through either the console or through a partner. We have a lot of partners that we work with, like an or three Verizon, et cetera, um, that you can go through, and many others. And then you'll choose a direct connect pop that you'd like to connect to. So we've deployed in many pops um, over even the last 12 months. The list is growing. So the regions and areas that we're in for direct connect is, is growing phenomenally. It's, it's amazing. But you basically will then have a customer device or, or partner device in a cage at that co-location facility. So in this case, we're in an Equinix uh, facility in Silicon Valley. And then you'll provision or ask a, a the Equinix uh, or um, data center provider to provision a cross-connect, and you need what's called an LOA-CFA or a Letter of Authorization Customer Facilities Agreement, which you'll give to the provider. They'll provision a physical fiber between the Direct Connect POP, which is in an Amazon cage, and the device that you've got at that facility or a partner's device. And uh, you probably want to build pr uh, connectivity back to your on-premise. If it isn't in the co-location facility, you'll use a, a WAN like an MPLS IPVPN or maybe a, an Ethernet um, uh, WAN or something similar. Once you've done that, 
you'll provision your virtual interfaces. So once the physical connectivity is up and running, you can then go in and create what we call a private virtual interface or a public virtual interface. So the private virtual interface gives you connectivity to the VPC. We're going to communicate with BGP and advertise the private routes of that VPC over into your on-premise. With a public VIF, you've got access to S3, DynamoDB, SQS, SNS, all of the public services that sit outside of the VPC. So that's, you're going to use that to communicate with those. And not just in that local region, with a public VIF, you can talk to re, um, services in all AWS regions. So you could talk from or communicate from Equinix for SV1. You've got a direct connect. You could then communicate all the way through to S3 in Dublin if you wanted to. Uh, we also have what's called Direct Connect Gateway now, which gives you the ability to um, connect a virtual interface to a VPC in another region as well. So pretty cool. All right, what does VPN connectivity look like? Well. There's a few uh, less components, but again, we build our AWS infrastructure. We might have some internet access here um, to the VPC via an IGW, for example. We've got our on-premises. In this case, again, we create a virtual private gateway or a VGW. So the VGW is used for direct connect and it's used for um, IPsec termination. So you can build instances inside a VPC, and I think I've got a slide on that in just a second. But if you build a VGW, attach it to a VPC, You've got your on-premise device that you define, so we call that a CGW or a customer gateway. Then you create the VPN connection between the two. So there's really only uh, three components um, to this. There's the VGW, the CGW on the customer side, and the VPN connection between the two. Then you configure the CGW from a sample configuration we send you. IPsec comes up. And note, it is, is over the public internet as well. But now you've got an encrypted tunnel where the AWS side is managed by AWS in the form of the VGW that you manage as a customer, but you don't have to actually go in and physically configure a device. You don't need to um, run an IPsec command. It's just the VGW, and you configure it through the console, which is quite simple. Now, what if you wanted to use some marketplace firewalls or something similar? Now, we are putting a bit of a partner spin on this. So you could use devices that support IPsec for IPsec termination inside your VPC. So we've got a VPC, we've got our application instances, we've got our on-premises again, we've got a CGW, our on-premise router, or what we all know is a, a CPE. We've got another subnet here, and we're deploying some VPN instances. So now via the IGW, so before we were going via a VGW, in this case we have a public subnet with a set of instances which are accessible via the public internet, and we can build an IPsec tunnel to those instances. So if you did manage um, a certain vendor's equipment and um, you wanted to use those for IPsec termination inside the Amazon uh, VPC, you can absolutely do that. And we have a whole bunch of partners that um, support this type of configuration as well. So definitely worth uh, while checking out. And these are deployed again through the AWS Marketplace. And there's a bunch of others that I didn't list on here. Okay, so what about VPC in the rest of AWS? So there's AWS services inside your VPC. So when we build services, if you think about the first service we launched was SQS, Simple Queue Service. And that was before VPC. So it was a public service that we deployed in the public AWS realm. S3 followed. Then we deployed EC2 in its original form, so EC2 Classic. And um, after we deployed VPC, we started building services inside of VPC. So things like EMR, our Elastic MapReduce, RDS, our Relational Database Service, Lambda now supports um, in, in VPC um, connectivity. We've got virtual private endpoints or VPC endpoints uh, for things like S3 and DynamoDB as well. Um, DNS inside of VPC. 
and then also uh, logging with VPC flow logs. Let's jump in and dive in on a couple of these, see what they look like. So in this case, we've got an Amazon RDS database inside your VPC. So when you deploy the RDS instance, you choose a VPC, and it's going to take an address, like I mentioned earlier, from your VPC address range. So you can now secure this with security groups. You can specify that my web instances, again, up here, are now going to talk to an RDS database, and we're going to have a certain security group around those as well. So it gives you a of security and a construct to build services within your VPC that aren't publicly access accessible, um, given that if you wanted to deploy a... Uh, SQL database using RDS, you may or may not want that connected to the public internet. In this case, you can have a security group saying only my web instances will talk to my database service. Again, multiple subnets, multiple availability zones, and we've got multiple RDS deployments here. So we've got a uh, standby or secondary RDS uh, here as well. We also have things like AWS Lambda that run inside of VPC. So Lambda is you know, code as a service, and it runs in a VPC that we manage for you. And traditionally, when Lambda was first launched, it was public. You would have to access Lambda through public Elastic IP addresses. Now we have Lambda that we take an Elastic Network interface and place it inside your VPC. And that's then addressed with the addresses within, in your VPC, and it's addressable to your instances inside your VPC. So now if you want to do an outbound call from Lambda to something inside your VPC, you don't have to open it up to the rest of the world. You can then have that internally inside your VPC. So pretty cool stuff. All righty. So some best practices. So many, many services support running inside of VPC, and the list is growing as well. Got some stuff here on uh, virtual uh, private endpoints. Security groups release privileged network access, always a good idea. Multiple availability zones, again, remember, availability zones are what constitute as fault domains. So they have fiber feeds, redundant fiber feeds, power feeds, et cetera. But you want to span your applications across multiple availability zones. So like a multi-zone uh, RDS deployment, et cetera. VPC endpoints for Amazon S3. So one question you might be thinking, and we got this question quite a lot from customers, how could I privately access Amazon S3? It sits in the public realm. I've got a VPC. I don't want to open up the rest of the world to access my VPC just to access S3. It's all AWS. Why can't I just access it privately? Well, that's when we came up with the concept of a virtual private endpoint. So an endpoint, before endpoints, we've got these services, SQS, SNS, the EC2 API endpoints, Lambda, etc. These were all existing inside of the VPC. So if we take S3 and use this example to connect to S3 before endpoints, we've got a route here. We've got our local route. Then we've got a default route via the IGW again. We've got an Elastic IP on an instance. It's communicating out to Amazon S3. And we've got communications. Now, we did have to open up that um, instance to have a public IP. Um, we need a security group there, et cetera. For the private subnet, we could go via a NAT instance. So we've got another Elastic IP on the NAT instance. We're now transiting through a NAT instance to get to S3 because we've got an instance that we don't want publicly accessible, but we want it to access S3. So instances needed public connectivity, security groups, and the mindset that S3 is in the public internet. It's in the Amazon public internet, but it's public nonetheless. So then we created virtual private endpoints. So what they are is they basically give you the ability to access services like S3 privately within your VPC. So now we can get rid of our Elastic IPs on instances if we, need, if we want to. 
We don't need default routes pointing to an IGW, so we get rid of those. We don't need NAT instances. All we basically have is the virtual private endpoint. We don't even really need an IGW. We could remove the IGW if we wanted to and have a VPC with no internet access, but we would have S3 access. So now we use prefix lists, which de uh, denote S3, this prefix list, via a virtual private endpoint. So within the, the local routing table, we're going to configure this route and send traffic via the virtual private endpoint up into S3. Now, everyone generally chooses a 10.1.0.0/16 or 10.0.0.0/16. How does S3 figure out that's customer A, customer B, and customer C? Well, we've got a specific tag that we attach to packets transiting a virtual private endpoint that identifies the VPC. So we know it's a 10.1.0.15 in this case, but also it's got a VPC A, B, C, D, E uh, as well, so we know where to send that traffic back to. So think about it this way in the fact that S3 is still a public service, it's still going over the public AWS backbone, but now you're privately talking to it via a private IP address. So you're not opening up that instance to the, to the rest of the world. All righty. So even private subnets can talk via a virtual private endpoint. This also gives us the ability to have an IAM policy. So we can restrict, uh, with an IAM policy on a bucket, we can say, I only want this VPC to access this S3 bucket. So we can have an additional layer of security there for that public S3 bucket. If it were public, you can make it private and, and configure an S3 um, IAM policy there. We also have DynamoDB via a virtual private endpoint, so that's pretty cool. So we'd basically have an additional prefix list for DynamoDB via the virtual private endpoint. So recently... No, that was something else. Yeah, we can talk about that after. Come, come see me. So virtual private endpoints um, allows access to DynamoDB and S3. But then we recently deployed this thing called AWS Private Link. So again, if we think about when we deployed Lambda and said, OK, well, let, let's make that available inside a VPC. Uh, what did we do? We took an Elastic Network interface and we brought it into your VPC, and now you could access Lambda. We're basically doing a very similar thing here with things like the AWS uh, EC2 API. So previously, if you wanted to do an API call, you'd have to have an instance with public internet accessibility, and you'd talk to the API endpoint. Uh, same thing with Elastic Load Balancing, Kinesis Streams as well. So now all of these services come in via an interface. So it's not a virtual private endpoint, but they're using the interface method to be accessible within your VPC. And this launched, uh, I think it was early November. So now we have additional services that reside within your VPC and can uh, be talked to or communicated with privately. So pretty awesome stuff. All right, so Private Link is basically going to give you the ability to reach these other services. And the beauty of Private Link is because we're using an ENI and we're using an address within your VPC, we don't actually have to do the route table update because it's basically now within your VPC. And remember, we had that local route for the VPC. You'd be using that to communicate with these. So it's a little bit small here, but if we did go to create an endpoint, um, you'll notice that there are the original gateway for DynamoDB and S3. I think I'm, I'm not wearing my glasses, so it's hard to see over there as well. But that now we have these additional interface private link um, abilities for these other services. Pretty cool stuff. Okay, and we're obviously going to be expanding this list as we go along as well. So DNS inside a VPC. Well, it's quite easy to have an Amazon-managed DNS inside a VPC. 
pretty straightforward DNS resolution to yes, DNS host names to yes. Now when you spin up an EC2 instance, if you enable these two attributes, each EC2 instance is going to get a private um, uh, DNS name. So you can reference each of these instances that you spin up via the DNS name. So pretty handy. And you can do a whole bunch of stuff with Route 53 and private hosted zones and um, probably a, a whole topic for, a, for another session there. Okay, so private hosted zones with Route 53 uh, gives you the ability to basically configure your private hosted uh, zone for your VPC. Okay, so VPC flow logs. Visibility is one of the things that, that we heard from our customers that, that customers want. So in the traditional days, you'd use MRTG, you'd use NetFlow, you'd use routers that send uh, sampled packet rates to some visibility service, and you'd basically get some form of, you know, generally looks like a sine wave in your peaks and troughs, etc. some form of traffic visibility inside the VPC. Before VPC flow logs, we didn't have that. There are partners out there that do this sort of thing. So there was, um, I think, um, BMC ClearSight was one of the products that um, used to do this, where you could have a NetFlow agent on an instance sending to a NetFlow collector, and you'd get visibility of the traffic on your instances. So we saw that there was a lack of visibility on instances, and we developed this thing called VPC flow logs. And what flow logs basically is, is metadata for the traffic that's going in and out of your instances. So now if you've got an instance in uh, a couple of AZs, you configure flow logs, and that's going to send traffic to CloudWatch. So CloudWatch is basically going to, going to collect these um, pieces of metadata and give you some visibility. And I've got a, a slide here where I can, I can show you what it looks like. But basically enabling CloudWatch is pretty straightforward. We just click on the uh, create flow log uh, here for the, the VPC as well. And um, then the traffic is going to be captured in CloudWatch logs. So pretty straightforward. Now, what does that look like? Well, we've got a, um, a CloudWatch log here. So you'll notice that there's a bunch of accepts. So accept OK. So this is basically source and destination, uh, port, and a bit of information about the actual uh, flow itself. You'll notice there's also a reject there. Let's have a look at that one. So basically, UDP port 53, we've had a reject. Who is this? We do a dig on the IP address. Um, whoops, it could be. Um, you know, internetpolice.co or something like that, but it gives you a bit of visibility into if traffic is passing through to your instances or if it's being rejected as well. So Flowlogs is giving you um, the metadata on visibility for your traffic, so pretty cool stuff. Now, we do have partners as well, again, um, to, to reference our partners like Datadog and Splunk that are doing visualizations for VPC Flowlogs. There's others out there as well, but we're basically um, allowing them to, or um, you're sending them the CloudWatch uh, log, and they're then visualizing that, and you can get a bit of uh, a visualization, almost like MRTG. Um, what I'd like to see with flow logs in the future is NetFlow-esque like behavior. I, I mean, right now it's metadata, and it's actually quite useful, but I'd love to see that expanded to include more attributes, and, and like what we used to get from uh, routers and that sort of thing. But Datadog and Splunk and others basically give you a bit of visualization there. And there is a white paper out there around how to build your own visualization from uh, CloudWatch as well which is probably worth checking out. Okay, so VPC, your private network in AWS. So we've got our VPC that we built early. We've got our public subnets. We've got our private subnets. Uh, we're using VPC. We're using EC2. Uh, we've got um, some elastic IPs associated with our two instances in the public subnet. Our private subnet doesn't have public IP addresses. 
we now know that we can use virtual private endpoints. So if we want to talk to things like S3, if we'd like to talk to things like DynamoDB privately over virtual private endpoint, we can do that. Pretty cool. Also, we've got peering, so VPC peering within a region right now. So we've got a VPC inside the same region. We can set up a peering connection and then communicate with that VPC. So we've got private connectivity between, let's say, a 10. In this case, we've got a 10, um, a 1. Actually, there's a typo here on the IP address. Awesome. Um, we've got a 10 slash 16, and we can communicate with maybe a 172 or something like that. You do need to have unique addresses with peering again, too. We've got a VGW, our virtual private gateway, VPN connectivity, direct connect connectivity, so the physical fiber that you can bring into a direct connect pop, a VPN which you can configure over a public internet connection. And we've also got uh, CloudWatch with VPC logs as well, giving you some visibility there. So you can see as we've gone from a foundational virtual private data center, we're now adding these additional services and features where you can get things like visibility, get things like connectivity, get things like private connectivity to other services like S3 and Dynamo, DB, et cetera. So there's these add-ons that you can build depending upon how you want to build your architecture. So some pretty awesome things there. NAT Gateway as well. How could I forget NAT Gateway? That was, uh, NAT Gateway is great, actually. And other services like Amazon RDS and Lambda, et cetera, existing inside your VPC. Route 53 for uh, private hosted zones as well. All righty, so that's what a VPC really looks like today. There's a bunch of other services too. Now, some related sessions worth checking out for the network savvy here. There's a whole bunch of stuff here. Uh, for the basics as well, this was a, a foundational service. I keep um, building upon this scenario in Net 305. Have a look in the agenda. Um, check it out. It's on Thursday, I think, 1 or 1.45. And I'll basically take the architecture that we built here and add services that we've deployed in the last um, 12 months and, and see what that architecture really morphs into. So feel free to come along and check it out. Shameless plug, um, we did release the AWS Certified Network uh, Exam Certification Guide recently as well. Check it out. I'm one of the authors. Um, don't get any royalties, so um, feel free to check it out as well. And that's all I've got for you guys. Uh, thanks very much. Uh, we've got about 15 minutes left. Thank you. Um, I'll be down the front for questions as well. I'll, I've got about 15 minutes and then about another 10 minutes before my next session, so happy to answer any questions at all. Just come and down and have a chat. Thank you.